Take your Bible and turn to the book of Romans. That's the first time I've said that in a long time. We've been in the book of 1 Thessalonians this whole year since the beginning of January. And if you'll remember, way back in January, I cast vision for the year 2021 as we were coming out of 2020, a year we'd all like to forget. And my theme was, there is hope. We've heard that. We've seen that. We've celebrated that. And so in order to cement this truth about the fact that there's hope, we began a series in one of the most hopeful books in the Bible, the book of 1 Thessalonians, and that's where we've spent our spring. With all of the seemingly hopeless situations around us, with the global pandemic, with the riots and the violence and the demonstrations, with the political polarization, with the governmental overreach, with division, hostility, and anger, we are left in a situation in our society and in our world with great uncertainty. There is uncertainty in the stock market. There's uncertainty in education. There's been uncertainty in the government. There's uncertainty in the medical world. And then, of course, the corollary to those uncertainties is depression, discouragement, and in some even despair. I don't think I have to sell you on it. This is where our world has been the last year. And so as we approach 2021, I wanted us to communicate collectively to one another and communicate to the world. There is hope. Even when things seem hopeless, there is lasting hope. And friends, hope is not found in more and better education. Hope is not found in medical breakthroughs or scientific discoveries or technological advances. Hope is not found even, listen, in self-help or self-care strategies, though they can be helpful. Ultimate and final hope is only found in a person, in Jesus Christ. And he is the hope we are pointing the world to. And so again, all spring we've been in one of the most hopeful books the book of 1 Thessalonians. In the fall, we'll come to the follow-up book, the book of 2 Thessalonians, which will take us through Thanksgiving. But this summer, I really wanted to dial in on this theme of hope in this series that I've entitled Summer of Hope. And so for the next 16 weeks, we've got planned out 16 what I'm calling topositional sermons. Expositional preaching is what our normal diet of preaching us here at a church where we go through whole books of the Bible verse by verse, but by topositional, we take a topic, we find a, a book or a passage in the Bible that exposes that topic, and then we preach expositionally on the topic. So hence the term topositional. And so that's what we're going to do over the next 16 weeks. We're not going to uh, cover the comprehensive description of hope in the Bible, but we will give a good representation over the next 16 weeks of the diverse kaleidoscope of truth relating to the source of hope, Jesus Christ. Now, this morning, we're going to be considering this passage in the book of Romans, and one of the downsides of doing a topositional series like we're going to be doing for the next 16 weeks is we don't have the advantage of starting week one in chapter one, verse one. We're actually going to go to, going to, go to the next to the last chapter in the book of Romans, chapter 15, and that means we don't really have the context of the whole book that we've been in together. So here in chapter 15, and we're going to zoom in really, we're going to look at 13 verses, but zoom in really on one verse in particular, 
Let me just tell you a little bit about this church. This church in Rome that Paul is writing to is a very commendable church. They're a church that's seeking to do the right things. They're seeking to do things well. They're concerning them things in a very careful way of what they are supposed to do, how they're to live out their faith. And so they're concerned with, okay, what Old Testament festivals are we supposed to celebrate? What holy days are we supposed to recognize? What are we supposed to eat or not eat now that we are Christians? And there's some disagreement in this church about what's appropriate and inappropriate. And what the Apostle Paul could have done is he could have just simply sent them a short letter and said, do this, don't do that. But instead, what Paul does is he writes the grandest theological treatise of the Bible, the book of Romans. Well, he could have solved their problems with a little fly swatter. Instead, he brings out a howitzer. Ba-boom! <laughs> and he gives this mountain of truth known as the book of Romans. And as we come to chapter 15, he's wrapping the epistle up and he brings the church of Rome back to the main thing, back to the primary goal. We are to be a people, church in Rome, church in Lookout Valley, who have been transformed by the hope of Jesus and who also proclaim to the world the very same hope in Jesus. We're going to consider verses 1 through 13 throughout the message, but I want us to just read up front verse 4, and this is going to be our focal verse for the message today. Look in your Bibles or on the Bible study outline as I read verse 4 of Romans 15. This is God's Word. Hear it. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have I've entitled my message this morning, The Authority of Our Hope. And I wanted to start the series right here because everything rises and falls on authority, the trustworthiness of that authority. You know, there's a new phenomenon that's been rising in our culture really over the last couple of decades where there are people who have part-time and full-time jobs as fact-checkers fact checkers. In fact, I've got a nephew who's a part-time employed as a fact checker. Now, what, what is that? Well, because of the internet, because anybody and everybody can disseminate and can spread information at the click of a mouse, information literally is spread across the planet at light speed. And we can spread it without ever checking the veracity, without ever spending about oh, 20 seconds to see whether or not it's true. And so people spread information and misinformation. And so you've had this, this whole job and whole career path of people who are fact-checkers because, well, we don't know if things are true, if they're fact, or if they're fake. In fact, even formerly reputable news sources are presenting information that is not true. It's known as fake news, right? Sorry, that's my best Donald Trump impression I could give. Terrible, terrible stuff. Um, thank you, Trent. I, pre- I see that hand. Um, fake news. Why? Because here's the deal. It's all about getting clicks. Because every click is an advertising dollar. You put the most salacious headline out there where you're going to get more clicks. It's almost as if the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. I've never heard that before. Where's that from? And so this is what's driving it in our world today. 
Fact checkers have even been discovered to be not factual. So there are fact checkers of the fact checkers. Because of this modern phenomenon, we've come to recognize the absolutely vital importance of authority with all the information we hear. We need to know the reliability of a resource, the trustworthiness of a report. Well, this morning we're going to consider the authority of our hope. What is the authority of our hope? Well, namely, it's what Paul mentioned there in verse 4. The Scriptures. <laughs> the Scriptures are the authority for our hope. Now, when we come to the Bible, we come to the Word of God, we come with this fundamental understanding. Namely, look at this next slide. The consistent message of the Bible, of the 66 books of the Bible, is this, the redeeming grace of God. This is the message of the Bible. Now, look at this next slide. The redeeming grace of God finds its apex in the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in other words, the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, points us to Jesus. Now, having said that, not every verse in the Bible mentions Jesus. We can't in our Bible studying and our preparing for teaching magically make Jesus appear in every single verse in the Bible. But... If Jesus is the apex of God's purpose of redemption, we do know there is a connection of God's redeeming plan in every verse of every book of the Bible. Again, Jesus is the apex and the pinnacle of that plan. And what we see from Paul's biblical theology and the way in which he uses Scripture is that he does, in fact, come to this same conclusion. The ultimate intention and focus of both the Old Testament and the New Testament is the redeeming grace of God finding its apex in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we'll see how he does that as we go through the passage today. But from this one single verse, verse 4 of chapter 15, I want us to see four things about the authority of the Scripture as the Apostle Paul uses it and as he presents it. The first one is this. Number one, we see the inspiration of the Scriptures. The inspiration of the Scriptures. Verse 4 begins... For whatever was written in former days was written. Guess what? The Bible was written. Human beings took a pen or quill in hand and they wrote. They wrote what we have in the Bible. It was written. Now, here's what we believe. Here's some quick facts about the Scriptures that you may or may not know of. Look at this next slide. The Bible is a collection of 66 books written over a period of 1,600 years by 40 different human authors on three continents in three languages. Amazing diversity in the Bible. However, there is unity in the Scripture. Because in these 66 books of the Bible, written over a time span of 1,600 years by 40 different authors in Hebrew, some Aramaic, and in Greek, there is no contradiction. There is a unity among them that presents this same theme, the redeeming grace of God. How could this happen with such amazing diversity? One word, inspiration. It's the inspiration of God on the human authors who put pen to paper. Let's just contrast this with the Quran. This is the the so-called holy scripture of the Muslim faith, of Islam. This was written by one person. 
It was compiled in, by one in, another individual, um, Zaid bin Thabit, and he compiled it, and then a, a collection of Arab scholars took these variants, and they destroyed all the variants so they could just have one unified Quran. Think about the contrast. A committee took the writing of one person, destroyed any variants so they could say, this is the unified message of Muhammad. The Bible, by contrast, 1,600 years, not one author, 40 authors, three languages, three continents, and the unity with the expansive diversity is absolutely not just phenomenal, it's miraculous. Now consider these familiar words from the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3. He said, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul uses a unique word here, theopneustos, which is a compound word that means just the way the ESV translates it. Breathed out by God. Theo, God, neustos, breath, wind, spirit. The word of God has been breathed out by God. It is inspired. These are God's words. Now, some would argue, well, if the Bible claims to be the Word of God, isn't that circular reasoning? How do you know the Bible's the Word of God? Because it said it's, it's the Word of God. Well, how do you know it's right? Because it says it's right. Is that circular reasoning? Well, it would be if it were not for the fact that there is a reliability that we find in the Bible that does not exist in any other work throughout human history, especially works of antiquity. We also know of the reliability of the Bible because of those who make claims to its reliability. I could give you many examples. I'll just give you one. His name, Jesus. (laughs) Jesus depended upon the reliability of the Bible. Over and over again, we find in the four gospels, Jesus saying again and again, is it not written or have you not read He begins his ministry in the wilderness for 40 days by the onslaught of hell and temptation. How does he defend the word of God? He concludes his ministry after his resurrection from the dead. He's walking on the road to Emmaus with those disciples. Look what the Bible says in Luke 24. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus demonstrated his confidence in the inspiration, in the God-breathed nature of the Bible. But but there's further evidence of the Bible's supernatural inspiration. I'll just give you two of them. You might want to write these down. They're not on your outline. Archaeological evidence and fulfilled prophecy. Archaeological evidence is a proof of the inspiration of the Bible and fulfilled prophecy. A few months ago, Amber and I met down at Coolidge Park with a couple of Mormon missionaries, and we talked to them for about an hour and a half. Towards the end of that conversation, I had my Bible there, and I turned to the very back of my Bible, and I said, I want to show you something in my Bible. I turned to the very, very, very back, which is the maps. (laughs) And I said, look at this map. This shows a map at the time of Abraham and the time of the patriarchs of, of the promised land. I flipped over. I looked at the next map. This is a map at the time of the kings and what it looked like in the time of David and Solomon. I turned a little bit further, and here's a map of 
Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. It shows all the different points in Jerusalem where he and his disciples were. Turn to it again, and there's maps of Paul's first missionary journey, second missionary journey, third missionary journey. And I said to these Mormon missionaries, how do we get these maps? How do we get this information? Well, they looked dumbfounded because they were never prepared for this question in Salt Lake City. I said, here's how we know these maps are accurate. Archaeology. For centuries, archaeologists have taken the information we find in both the Old Testament and the New Testament and hundreds, even thousands of archaeological digs over and over and over and over again have discovered these ancient civilizations, ancient peoples, ancient places, ancient times. And that's how we know on this map it says this village is right here because they found it. Now, by contrast... There's this much archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon. None. Zilch. Nada. We know the Bible is true because archaeological evidence. One archaeologist by the name of Nelson Gluek, premier archaeologist, said this. There has never been a single archaeological discovery that has contradicted or controverted a single biblical reference. Not one. But, okay, it's accurate. That tells us that it's accurate, that what we're reading is reliable, it's true. But, friend, when we say the Bible is true, it's just not factually true. When we say the Bible is true, we mean it is truth. It is absolute truth. How do we know the Bible is truth? Well, the next one, fulfilled prophecy. You see, when the Bible was written... Much of what is written in the Bible is actually predictions by God as he inspired human authors to write things that were yet to come to pass. In fact, notice how Peter put it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. He said, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so, some 300 specific prophecies in the Old Testament written hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before the birth of Jesus were exactly fulfilled by Christ. And there are many prophecies that have been made that are yet to be fulfilled, but we know they will be because the nature of the Bible bears it out. This word carried along that Peter uses here in 2 Peter 1 is the idea of wind coming into the sails of a boat and carrying along that boat to its destination. And so men who wrote the scriptures, the Holy Spirit came into those men and they wrote down exactly the words, taking them to the destination they wanted them to go. He wanted them to go. Now, the nature of the Bible is we still have the character traits and the writing style of Paul and of Peter and of John, which are starkly different, but they're the exact words that God intended because they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so, friends, what this means is the Scripture which we look at as the only authority for hope, it possesses the necessary credentials. It has been fact-checked and rechecked, and it has not been found wanting. It is the Word of God. This is the first thing we know about the authority of our hope, and that is the inspiration of our hope. Here's the next thing. Number two, the instruction of the Scriptures. The Scriptures are inspired divinely, but also we find instruction from the Scriptures. 
Paul really answers the why question here. Why were the scriptures written? Why were they inspired by God? They were written for our instruction. Instruction. The word here in Greek is didaskalia. If you're a teacher, you ought to know a word from that, didactics. If you're an educator, didactics is the art or the science of education. Didactics is the art or practice of teaching. Now, when we become disciples, a disciple means learner, student. You may not have known this. Maybe nobody told you. When you became a Christian, you were enrolled in school. These graduates say, I thought I just finished. (laughs) You're enrolled in school, the school of Christ. We have one subject, Jesus. We have one textbook, the Bible. You are a student. You are a learner. The scriptures are given for our didascalia, for our instruction, for our learning, that we would grow in knowledge. It's interesting, throughout church history, as missionary advancement has gone into the dark places of the world, taking the gospel of Jesus, as the church has been established and and gaining a foothold in these regions, two things that missionaries would really do after a church is established. They would put two institutions in place. One is a medical clinic. The second is a school. (laughs) Why would missionaries throughout church history have an emphasis on education, on a school? Here's why. We need people to be literate so they can read the Bible because we're students. When they come to faith in Christ, they need to learn to read so they can be instructed from the Scriptures. Amazingly, we live in a modern society today where compulsory education has been the law of the land throughout the 50 states for nearly 100 years. The literacy rate of the United States of America, 99%. This is a gift of common grace to us. But specifically, this didascalia, this instruction, this teaching we're to be looking at in this passage, when the context of Romans 15, it's important to note what it is. In fact, look at the first three verses of the chapter. He says this, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So the strong in this passage is referring to those who are strong in the faith, those who are mature believers, being strong in their confidence in God. We who are strong in the faith, who have maturity in the faith, have an obligation, Paul says, a responsibility to bear with those who are weaker in the faith. What does that mean? Well, in the context of the previous chapter, what it means is we don't use our positions of maturity to exercise personal liberties that become a stumbling block for those who are weaker in the faith. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. In other words, mature believers give away their rights. Mature believers don't cling to those things of position that they have by virtue of their maturity. That sounds an awful lot like Jesus. Jesus did not regard equality with God, something to be clung to, something to be grasped, that he emptied himself and made himself nothing, becoming the form of a servant. And that's exactly what Paul points to here. He says, for Christ did not please himself. He didn't please his own wants. He laid those wants to the side to take care of other people. And then what Paul does, he gives authority to this statement. Christ did not please himself 
but gave away his rights. Then he quotes, you see on the text there, the quotation marks. See that? This is a quote. This is a quote from the book of Psalms. The reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. Interestingly, this psalm, Psalm 69 that Paul quotes here, is a psalm of David. It happens to be what's known as an imprecatory psalm. An imprecatory psalm is where the psalmist, usually David, is calling down God's judgment on his enemies. God, these people are bad people. They've done me wrong. Would you go ahead and zap them? That's an imprecatory psalm. Paul takes an imprecatory psalm talking about the reproaches of those who have reproached me, and he says, those reproaches have fell on Christ. The judgment that we might call down on others because of how they've wronged us. The Bible says those judgments, that justice you so demand, it's already fallen somewhere. It's fallen on Christ. You see how the Scriptures give us instruction? They're for our learning. They're for teaching. And this is why, friend, if you can read If you're a Christian, you have no other discipline that is as important as reading the Bible. If you do not read the Bible, you're not receiving the instruction God has supernaturally delivered to you. You can read today, not to read Facebook, not to read the headlines. God has given you the common grace of literacy to read the Scripture and be instructed by them. So we see the instruction of the Scripture, the supernatural inspiration of the Scriptures. Here's the third thing, the impact of the Scriptures. The impact of the Scriptures. Paul describes the personal impact of the inspired Scriptures in our lives with two words. He says we're instructed by them through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures. That's the impact. You may want to circle those two words, endurance and encouragement. Endurance and encouragement. This is the result, this is the consequence, the impact of studying and being a student of the Scriptures. This is why they have been given to us, so that we can stay on the path of obedience, so that we can walk in righteousness. If you ever feel like quitting, read the Scriptures. If you ever feel like throwing the towel in, read the Scriptures. Why? Because they've been given to us for endurance and for encouragement. When I was 11 years old, my much older sister, Kathy, she's 11 years older than me, she married Randall. Randall's my brother-in-law. Now, Randall was, uh, he was a runner. He loved running in these 15K races. And one in particular that he ran in every year was the Gasparilla Distance Classic. And so he would get the 15K Gasparilla t-shirt. And this is exactly what they look like. If you don't know anything about Tampa history, buccaneers, pirates, that's kind of the whole shtick of Tampa. And so Jose Gaspar was a famous pirate who landed in Tampa. And so Gasparilla is a celebration of pirates. It's really uh, sinister that we would celebrate pirates, but we did. And so um, (laughs) Gasparilla Distance Classic was one of them. I always, as an 11 year old kid, saw the t-shirts my brother-in-law Randall wore. I was like, man, I want one of them t-shirts. That's a little cool cartoon there of Gaspar running. And he said, well, the only way to get one is you got to run in the race. I said, okay, I'll run in the 5k. There's a 15K, a 5K. So guess what Randall started doing? Taking his wife's kid brother running a couple times a week. 
Why? He was training me to endure. And when I wanted to quit, what did my loving brother-in-law do? He encouraged me. And I ran the 5K race, and I got the T-shirt to prove it. Not anymore, but I did have it. (laughs) Encouragement, endurance. Friends, this is what the Scriptures are for. By reading them, by being in them, we can receive endurance and encouragement. The word here for encouragement is the feminine noun parakalesis. You've probably heard, if you've been in church for a while, a preacher, maybe even me, say something to the effect of, here's what parakaleo, which is the verb, means. Para means like parallel, alongside. Kaleo means to call. So parakalesis, encouragement, is to call alongside, to be called alongside. And that's what encouragement is. Somebody coming along somebody else and giving them encouragement. Interestingly, Jesus is given as using the the masculine noun form in John chapter 14. Watch this. But the helper, parakletos, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you didasco, we've heard that before, all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you, the word of God. So here's the process. Think about it. The scriptures are theopneustos, breathed out by God, the breath of God, the wind of God, the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God inspired the scriptures. Jesus comes along and says, hey, all of my methetes, all of my disciples, all of my learners, I'm going to send to you the parakletos, the comforter, the encourager, and he will bring to you paraklesis, which is encouragement. Think about this. Reading the Bible as a spirit-indwelt disciple initiates and stimulates a supernatural, miraculous chain of events. If you're a Christian, Jesus promised he was going to send the helper, the spirit. He resides within you. When you open the Bible, you're reading the word, this same spirit who lives within you, inspired to bring instruction, didasco, and to give you encouragement. And so when you read the Bible, it sparks this supernatural chain of events. You know why God's not working in your life? You're not reading the Bible. You're not memorizing Scripture. You're not implanting it in your mind and in your heart. I just don't get anything out of the Scriptures. You're not reading them. You're not studying them. And today we have so many tools available to us, unlimited tools available to us on the Internet, apps on our phone to teach us. They'll read the Bible to us. It is incredible. I can't emphasize this enough. Child of God, get in the Word. Get in the Bible. In fact, notice how the scriptures put it in Psalm 1, the gatekeeper of the book of Psalms, the songbook of the Hebrew people. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Not a shrub, not a bush, like a tree. Planted where? By the river of truth. No matter what seasons come, as storms assail this tree, as drought seeks to drain this tree, he is never far from the life-giving source of the river of truth and he prospers in all that he does. 
This is the encouragement to us from the Scripture, and that's why one practice we must adopt in our life is being in the Word. So we've seen the inspiration of the Scriptures, the instruction of the Scriptures, the impact of the Scriptures, at least to the final thing I'd point us to. Number four, the intention of the Scriptures. Let's read verse four again, the whole thing. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, what? We might have hope. This is the intention of the Word. This is the intention of the Scripture, this reality of hope. And hope, friend, is not just a state of mind. Hope is not an attitude. Hope is not even an emotion. Hope is the reality of Jesus. The intention of the Scriptures is to provide us hope because the intention of the Scriptures is to point us always to Christ. He is the point of the book. He's the point of the story. In fact, let's read from verses 5 through verse 13 of Romans 15 to see as we close how this passage bears this out. Paul continues in verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Verse 9. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Here comes the scripture. You ready? Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, quote, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, quote, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, quote, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him with the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound, flourish in hope. Now, I've pointed out, as we read that, the quotation marks. Paul quotes, in this short section, four different Old Testament passages. If you have a reference Bible and you have it open, there are little footnotes by each verse. Those are little italics, lowercase letters. And maybe in the center column or at the bottom of the page, you follow that letter down to that verse, and it'll tell you where he's quoting from. In verse 9, 10, 11, and 12, there are those footnotes. In verse 9... Your footnote should say he's quoting from, anybody find it? 2 Samuel 22. 2 Samuel 22. What is that? This is the historical record of the end of King David's life. King David, a man after God's own heart, but had broken God's heart by committing adultery with Bathsheba, then having her husband murdered. He raised children who were rebellious rebellious against the purpose of God. And in the end of his life, he even turned his back on God himself. But his final song recorded in 1 Samuel 22, 2 Samuel, is that he believed God will fulfill his purposes in spite of him. What was the purpose? That God would bring even the Gentiles in to worship the one true God. After that, there's another quote in verse 10. Your footnote should say Deuteronomy 32. In Deuteronomy 32, we have a song of not David, a song of Moses. 
And friends, this is the fifth book of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the final book of Moses, book of, of the law. And it's the end of his life after he had struck the rock in disobedience and thereby profaned the glory of God by wanting to get some glory for himself. He was then prohibited from leading the people of Israel into the promised land. Yet he sung a song to God. And what did he sing in part? Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Even at the end of his life, even though he'd failed God and wasn't able to walk into the promised land with the people of Israel, he still believed the promise that God was going to, through the descendants of Abraham and the patriarchs, bring all the nations around the throne to worship the one true God. And then you go to verse 11. There he quotes from Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. Psalm 117 from the book of the Psalms, which is the song book of the Hebrews, they sang these psalms as they were in the tabernacle or in the temple. They sang these psalms even, listen, during the dispersion when they were cast out of the promised land. They sang these songs even when they were exiled in Babylon. And even up until the time of Christ, true believers in the one true God were still singing these songs of hope even under desperate Roman occupation. And here... Paul quotes it. And what are they singing about? The bringing in of all Gentiles. That's us, by the way, into the family of God. And then verse 12, the other footnote is from the book of Isaiah. Again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. That's from Isaiah chapter 11, a prophecy from the prophet Isaiah that Messiah would come and this knowledge of the Messiah would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now, I want you to think about what Paul has done here. There are four genres in the Old Testament. The books of the law, the books of history, the books of poetry, the books of prophecy. Paul quotes from every genre. The books of the law say, one is coming and all nations are going to worship him. The books of the history say one is coming and all the nations are going to worship him. The books of poetry say one is coming and all the nations will worship him. The books of prophecy predict over and over again, Messiah, the root of Jesse, is coming and all the nations will worship him. And Paul says, by the authority of the Scriptures, your only hope is Christ. In fact, he concludes this section. Look again at verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Friend, through all the difficulties and trials we go through, through all the hardships and tribulations, through your own foibles and failures, Jesus is our hope. He's our hope. And we know He is because of the only inspired, inerrant Authority that tells us that, the Scriptures. In this, we hope. That leads to my last thought. To engage with the Scriptures is to meet with Jesus. And friend, to meet with Jesus is to have hope. Let's go to him in prayer.